I went to a marvelous party. Most people don't even know the fact that the underlying ideas don't have enough depth to last for an entire season. Christopher, this is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine, you first, Eric. Live from the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's the Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, the Internet's first live comedy variety show. Featuring special correspondents from the worlds of entertainment, politics, and lousy relationships, everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you through the dinnerpartyshow.com with your hosts, New York Times best-selling novelists Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Good evening, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Show, and tonight we are doing our first ever Festival of Books. Dun, da, da, da. The LA Times Festival of Books took place recently here in Los Angeles, but we don't care. This is actually our Festival well, of we Books. Well, we do care, but <laughs> this is our Festival of Books now. Good luck to them, and we hope it went well, and it's at USC now, and love USC, but now yeah. we're at the Dinner Party Show's first annual Festival of we're an international show. We can be listened to anywhere in the world. If you can access our website at thedinnerpartyshow.com, you can hear our show. So, so it's the International Festival of Books. The World Festival of Books. <laughs> I wish I had a reverb button for Here that in one. in our tiny studio on Sunset Boulevard. On Sunset Boulevard. Beautiful West Hollywood. Eric yells at the world from the Sunset Strip. That was the original title of our show, actually. Uh, no, tonight we have two authors who are coming on the show. The first is Janet Fitch. She is the author of the Oprah's Book Club pick and uh, the novel that was adapted into a movie starring Michelle Pfeiffer, White Oleander. So I'm sure you've heard of her. And then we will have Leslie S. Klinger, who said we could call him Les this evening. Right. So we're going to call him Les. He is one of the world's foremost experts on He's Sherlock Holmes. The world's foremost expert. So Eric is going to go full geek oh because God. he loves Sherlock I Holmes. Get, I get to just talk about Sherlock Holmes for half an hour. <laughs> half an hour? How long do you want that interview as to go on? As long as I want. Oh, it's my Lord. show. All right, all right, all right. Well, it's our show, but mine too. Absolutely. So, yeah, we have great time. We have great guests and uh, lots of books to talk about and some of the usual suspects also this week. Yeah, what happened with you and Jordan Ampersand? Well, what usually happens? I'm with seeing me in and the Jordan show Ampersand? notes that you I recorded an intro for some segment you guys did together. Did you guys go to a bookstore? Well, I guess you could call it that. Oh, this ought to be good. Yeah, this is our first trip out of the studio together. Yeah, and apparently possibly our last. Apparently, there's a panel that's going to happen later. Right, the first annual uh, dinner party show festival of books authors panel oh, uh, is who, coming who up later on in the show. The well, I think uh, Bastion, who's a regular on oh, the show, Jesus. has done a coffee table book oh, that he'll Christ. be talking about. And, oh my God! Uh, and then uh, some uh, a memoirist and a oh, mystery writer, okay. an erotica writer. Did you put this together? Well, I don't remember I having with, any input. On I this. worked with Honoria Rothrod, who is a, uh, oh, a occasional contributor here at the channel, to put together oh a, an author's panel. We're going to discuss what okay. they are. Okay, okay, okay. It's fine. Going to discuss the don't, future of don't, publishing. Don't sell it through the clothes. We're doing it. It's fine. It's fine. I didn't have any say about it, but we're doing it anyway. All right. Well, it wouldn't be a book festival without a author's panel. I, we are the author's panel. We're two authors, we're and on, every show we do is a panel. We're on every week. We're on every week. And we'll and be back some, next week, but we're here tonight with the <laughs> Festival of Books. The Festival of Books, and we're about to bring in Janet Fitch. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. The Dinner Party Show. We'll be the judge of that. Joining us now at the dinner table to kick off our very first festival of books is Janet Fitch. Welcome. Hi. Welcome to the dinner party show, Janet. Pleasure. Now, we're going to start the interview here because you are being interviewed by two writers today. And your novel, White Oleander, was given what at the time was probably the greatest oh plum God. a writer could so receive. Jealous. It was an Oprah's Book Club selection. 
So looking back on your Oprah-related experience, what are your fondest recollections? What are your least fond recollections? Give us the scoop. Oh, well, the fondest recollection was uh, I had a job. I went into this business and I paid their bills and answered their phones. And I knew something odd was happening because my editor was looking for me. And at the time, he called me the day before. And at the time, it seemed very odd because... uh, why would my editor be looking for me? I was just the peon. He was the, you know, the big deal. And I'm I'm at work and I get a phone call saying, um, you know, can I speak to Janet Fitch? And I said, oh, well, this is Janet Fitch. And they said, can you hold for Oprah Winfrey? (laughs) Oh my God. So you went straight for the jugular. I went for the flat. It was just flat. I was flatlining for the rest, I'd Uh, say for the rest of the month. Did you hear anything she said or was it just a buzzing sound? uh, I heard the things she said. She was uh, just really loved the book Uh and uh, that said I was going to be an Oprah pick Mm. and uh, that I couldn't tell anyone. Oh. That, you know, if you told, then it could be taken away from you. Wow. Because it was all about the big unveiling. But since you couldn't speak, well, right? I, you were in shock. What so I that remember wasn't a is just running into everything for like a month. Running, right. I was black and blue from running into oh. doorways, you know, just catching the corners of tables. Wow. Um, I evidently put every check that I'd written that day in the wrong envelope. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was my last day at work. <laughs> That's fantastic. So where where were you at as a writer, in your development as a writer when you received this phone call? How had the book done previously? Well, the I had been writing for about 20 years. I had been writing a long time. It took me a long time to sell my first short story. Mm. Uh, I'm sort of a self-taught writer. And just and you know, kind of have a have an aptitude for doing everything wrong. <laughs> so it takes me, you know. Luckily, I'm also kind of tenacious. Uh, otherwise, I would never have made it that long. I but think that has to be the case with all novels. Huh? Oh, Tenacity I'd, is the key. Yeah, I had written for so, so long that um, it was funny because you're geared to failure. You know how to handle failure. You know. Screw them, you know. Right, Too right. bad about you. Uh, right. You know, you look at at uh, poets and writers, and you look at all the people who've gotten their books published, and you just you're very practiced at hating them and right. hating the editors, right. and rejections, <laughs> and right. Uh, so you get a lot of energy from that kind of, uh, at, you know, putting yourself as an in an adversarial relationship with right. the publishing world. Now, right. the problem is once you're accepted, once all that uh, adversarial training, all that uh, uh, sense of being the phase? underdog, right. yeah, what fuels you? then it's like you've been pushing a wall for years and huh. suddenly there is no wall. Right. And you kind of stagger around. You don't know how to get your balance. <laughs> right. And so that was... It it took a long time, right? Uh, so that's when they say second book, second books are a problem, right? Yeah, it's sometimes Big because challenge. you you just don't know where your compass is anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was also made into a movie. So on top of the Oprah experience, you had the Hollywood experience. Oh How did yeah. That go? Well, the ho- I grew up in L.A. Right. And the My Three Sons house was right down the street from me. Oh. <laughs> so oh, cool. as kids, we'd see the trucks and we'd right. see all those people working, and and uh, you couldn't go inside. You just could look at it, and. It was amazing to go inside mm-hmm. when they were shooting, being able to come onto the set. Oh, you know, you could sit in the director's chair while they're talking, and what what do you what do you think? And right, um, how exciting! It was so for an LA kid. It was yeah. extremely it exciting. Maybe less unaccustomed than the publishing itself. Being an LA kid, you were probably oh. more familiar with movie words or the French. Only from the, the outside, right, though. Right. So it was so. I remember going to the premiere at the hall at the Grauman's Chinese. Wow. And the man's Chinese. It's still the Grauman's Chinese. Always. always. Uh, I had my seventh birthday party at the Grauman's Chinese. We went and saw uh, Mary Poppins when it opened. Oh, excellent. And so here I was on the red carpet of the Chinese. And it was your... 
book. Going in yeah. with the book. Uh-huh. And uh, it was, uh, so the movie thing was a huge thrill. Were you happy with the finished product? The inevitable question. I, I was. I, you know, I'd say about, about 85%. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things I would have done differently, but I didn't have to. Right. I was a f- I, I went to film school for 2.5 seconds. And <laughs> so did I. <laughs> I know how I learned how hard it is, how time consuming yes. it is, how what a sentence that you can think of in 30 seconds will take you two hours to right. shoot. Um, I don't like trying to do things in real reality. It, it's too right. cumbersome. Right, absolutely. Yeah, movie, not writing a novel is like you you are the the lighting guy and the director and the actor and the right. the everything. The entire scene right. happens in your head in an instant. It's the it's when I'm writing, it's the I see I'm just describing the movie that's unfolding in my head. Right, but then there are you know all kinds of considerations. So I think the fact that they brought something like that together um you know, big messy novel and turning it into a uh, an elegant two-hour yeah, experience. Absolutely, pretty good. Well, you're listening to the Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Derek Shaw Quinn. Our first guest for our very first festival of books is Janet Fitch, the author of White Oleander and Auspicious. Painted Black. We will talk about Painted Black, your second novel. When we come back, we will also talk about the novel that you're working on currently, which is about Russia. Uh, But in the meantime, we're going to take a break for a report from one of our special correspondents. This is a bookstore? Um, yeah. Hello. Ingalls & Wilders is a totally famous bookstore chain that's been around forever. Yeah, I know, but it it sounds like a penny arcade in here. Jesus, what the hell is... When the economy got bad, Ingalls & Wilders realized they could make more money off of remote-control helicopters for kids. Bullets? They're not real. He'll get up in a minute. Come on, Eric Shaw Quinn. I brought you here to show you what I like to read. Do they still have any books in here? All I see are e-reader displays and computer games and stuffed animals. My favorite books are all right here. Jordan, this is a magazine section. What do you mean? I mean, there are no books here. These are all magazines. These involve reading. See, look, look. Okay, okay. Gay teen skateboarder Temi Johnson talks to Twink Beat about new balls deep underwear. Christ, Jordan, I thought you brought me here to prove that you weren't dumb. No, I brought you here to prove that I read sometimes. Magazine. Okay, fine. Let's go to my other favorite section. What the hell is that thing? Oh, that's a new toy. His name is Juarez, the cursing centipede. He teaches Spanish to children. By cursing at them? You have to start with what they want to know. He only curses at children. No, he curses at anyone who steps on him, and you stepped on him, so watch where you're going. This place is a pigsty. Here we go. Okay, the young adult section. I can do this. Harry Potter, Hunger Games. Are those the books you like to read, Jordan? No, those are for kids. I relate to most of what's in this section because it's about how to deal with a lot of hot guys liking you at once. Not exactly what I took away from Harry Potter, but okay. I didn't take away anything from Harry Potter except British boys are all gay and want to talk about their wands all the time. Hmm, uh, what am I doing here? Here's my favorite book of last year. It's called Stand Up, Girl. Huh, that actually sounds kind of gritty and realistic for the young adult section. Yeah, it's about a girl who is half owl who oh, has to enter okay. into a contest where a really hot warlock pulls on her right arm oh and a really hot centaur pulls on her left arm at the same time and she can't mm, lose her balance. Or else what? Her entire family will be fed to werewolves while she's forced to watch. Oh, my God. It's about finding your place in the world. It's torture porn for horny teenage girls. There's a new kind of porn? This sounds awful. Well, whatever. She doesn't lose. She's half owl. She just flies away. Don't step on that centipede again. You're being so hostile for no reason. I'm being attacked and yelled at by toys inside what is supposed to be a bookstore. Meanwhile, you've done absolutely nothing to prove to me that you're not 
dumb. I never said I was bringing you here to prove that I was not dumb. I like being dumb. Dumb people have more sex because they're not always thinking it all the way through. They're not like, maybe that's too close to the skin to be a real Prince Albert. And you were on Grey's Anatomy one time, so why should I even care anyway? Jordan, what did you bring me here to prove? That dumb people read. Was that ever in dispute? Yes, you and Christopher always act like all this reading you do is what makes you smart. But what makes you guys smart is that you guys never have anything to do except like an internet radio show and writing novels and going on the road to promote them. But whatever, my point is that it's not the reading that makes you guys smart. It's the sitting at home thinking all the time. And I can't do that because people like me are always out having fun. Listen to me, you flaccid little cocksleeve. No one at the dinner party show has ever complained about you being dumb. Dumb people can be lovely. They can be kind. They can be generous. No, the problem with you, Jordan Ampersand, is that you have the demeanor and the values of a mean girl from high school who has just been given a red wine enema. Oh, my God. That happens in this book right here, Merlo, Millie's Homecoming oh, Song. This girl, Millie, is elected homecoming queen, and then her rival gets a big... Shut up, Jordan. It's a story about the dangers of competition and substance abuse. And this is a question of values. It's your values that are screwed up, Jordan, not your brain. Prattle on all you want about your fake near-death experience and your phony newfound spirituality, but there is something deeply, deeply wrong with the way you choose to view the world, and the ideas that are truly going to challenge your worldview are not going to come from Twink Beat magazine or some cursing stuffed caterpillar named after a violent border town. They're going to come from books. Books that make you consider yourself in relationship to the world as it is actually unfolding before you. What if I don't want my worldview challenged? Then you will be forever without the tools to stop me from challenging it. I've got this tool. Put, put that down. This ends it. Jordan, put that down. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Show's first ever Festival of Books. Seated at the table with us is Janet Fitch, the author of White Oleander, and Painted Black, which was your second novel, which came out how many years after White Oleander? How long did it take you to go back? It came out in 2006. I, I was reading something about you last night, and like many things you read about authors online, this may not be true, but you were studying history when you woke up and had the realization, I want to be a writer. Right. And yeah. I've, I have I was intrigued by that story because I, when asked if I ever had to dramatically shift careers, as if internet radio is not a career shift, I, I say I would go... <laughs> well, and be, it's just I not would, that dramatic. It's not that dramatic. <laughs> we just walk over to a studio from our just apartments. Just a few blocks, yeah. Um, but I always say to people I would become a historian. I would become a scholar Well, it's storytelling. Because, yeah. And so I was curious, how did that connection work for right. you? Right, exactly. Well, I, I had tried to write when I was a little kid, and I had a teacher who hated my guts mm. and really oh, didn't we all that's so helpful <laughs> you know, yeah Thanks so much and really i gave her a story to show her you know that there was something you know good about me and she just took a red marker and oh. gave it a good going over mm -hmm. and i didn't write again till i was 21 in fiction wow. yeah but uh i t i became more and more drawn to history because it's stories it's 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 I didn't major in English because it seemed very clinical. You know, right. you actually dissected things. And, and that's where that lady with the red, the hideous red yeah. pen came from. Oh, I'm sure. Ugh. But she, um, I think she was, she didn't like me for other reasons. I think mm. she was a little slow and I was, I was the kid who like finished her sentences. Oh. Ew. Oh, no, not Yeah, not her. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I didn't realize that until much later. <laughs> In retrospect, right. Yeah. yeah. But um, history, you know, was big personalities and, mm. you know, big, big background setting. And it's all about bringing a reader in, into a world and creating that world form, the skills that a novelist uses. Mm. And uh, I was had gone for a junior, second junior year abroad. <laughs> I was... A, five-year student. <laughs> and, I'm glad uh, you could narrow it down to five. I, don't I was a one-and-a-half-year student. I don't know so how I many years it took me. Yeah. Yeah. And just getting away from my home school, which was very intense, and getting out into the world a little bit, realizing that 
what I really liked about history were the stories, not mm. necessarily the um, all those old unearthing, <laughs> unearthing, you know, um, information that had not been uh, mm-hmm. found before. And so I uh, I woke up and I it was twenty one, and I just thought I want to be a writer. I don't want to do this. There was something particular about the stories of Russia that captivated you. Is that the case? You're working on a novel about Russia now, and you were studying Russia then. Right. I, I, uh, my degrees in history and Russian history was my specialty. And uh, I loved everything Russian. I went to Fairfax High School here in L.A. and took Russian as my language. Um, When I was in junior high, my father turned me on to Dostoevsky. Wow. And uh, this was a time when girls read Cress Delahanty and Cherry Ames, student nurse. <laughs> oh, God. And then there was Dostoevsky. And it's like, yeah, that, that was more yeah. what I was looking for. The Russia that captivated me, I think, and this is because it's a generational thing, is the sort of decaying monoliths of the Soviet empire, right? The, the idea of a sort of fractured nation today with all these mm-hmm. sort of nuclear silos buried in it and all these sort of vestiges of an empire that didn't survive. Um, what is the Russia that captivated you? What what period is it rooted in? Oh, um, after 1900 and up through uh, the first, say, 10 years of the revolution. Mm. The most beautiful literature and the most interesting people. Mm. Uh, so literate, so cultured, and yet their lives completely turned over. What do you do? I mean, we think our lives have changed a lot in the last 10 years, and mm. they have. Right, yeah. uh, but imagine, uh, you know, as an educated person, being living through a revolution. An actual an revolution, actual revolution. Right. right? Not yeah. just, yeah. Right. And then, you know, suddenly, oh, you know, maybe I can't afford to go to Starbucks every day or have my clothes dry cleaned. Oh, or there's you know, no Starbucks it's anymore. It's like boo-hoo. Or there's no currency you know, or the government. But what happens when when you can't, you know, how do you work? You know, right. how do you, where do you find yourself in a world where uh, your class has kind of been outlawed? That's where my character, that's that's what I've decided to write about just because I was interested. Fabulous. I wanted to live through it. I right. wanted to see what do you do when things that you think are going to happen don't – it doesn't play out that way. Right. And what's been an interesting possibility for you? You have a blog, which you I keep, love yeah. my blog. Uh, I, I did a blog because – Websites, you have to have somebody else manage them, Uh, Uh, whereas blogs are much more flexible. You can go and put on an event. And then I was thinking, okay, well, how could I create um, a blog that people would want to return to, not just, you know, a story and then they go on the blog to see or go on the blog to see something specific, but something Mm -hmm. that people would return to. And... uh, what I do with it is I have a little exercise that I used to give students where I would pick pick a word, uh, and they would write two pages double-spaced using that word somewhere in it. Hmm. And a lot of my published work has come from this little exercise. And I thought, oh, well, if I did that on a blog, then it's not like me – talking about, oh, this cute thing my cat did. I mean, I could care less about the cute thing my cat did, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to give somebody something kind of meaty. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I started doing these little short shorts Mm -hmm. and posting them on the blog. And it's great because it it gives something to me. It, It makes me write. I've probably have 50 of these, maybe almost 60 by now on on the blog mm-hmm. and it gives people a reason to come back mm-hmm. they get a free st- little story and uh, and then I have all these stories I could probably publish a book of short shorts excellent 
Yeah, so you can test it out for yourself at Janet Fitch writes. Absolutely. And both of your novels, White Oleander and Painted Black, are available for sale in our store at thedinnerpartyshow.com. And we'd like to remind our listeners that if they use the affiliate links at those products pages, the show will get a small percentage of the sale, which allows us to continue being free across all platforms, which which everyone appreciates. And uh, it doesn't take any money away from Janet either. We hope not. Anyway, we hope not. We'll we'll check on that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure about that. Janet, thank you so much for joining us for our first festival of books. Absolutely. And come back when Marina's finished. And we'll talk some more about that when you're getting ready to go out on book tour. Oh, boy. Absolutely. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. We'll be back shortly. Do you wish you had more time to read? Is there a stack of books piled on your nightstand or filling up the hard drive on your Kindle? These days, people are busier than ever posting meaningless shit about themselves on Facebook. So, if you're going to get any reading done, you need a solution that's going to make time, not take time. E-readers are great, but they only speed up the time it takes to get a book into your hands, not your brain. That's why we invite you to try Crystal Meth. A widely available stimulant that can be assembled in most home kitchens from a variety of household products that are sort of stringently regulated. Crystal methamphetamine has been shown to cause a marked increase in productivity for a period of three to four days before the user collapses into a scab-picking ball of paranoid delusions in one corner of their foul-smelling bedroom. But those three to four days can offer you an unlimited passport to the world of great literature. Watch the stack of novels on your nightstand disappear as they're replaced by a half-assembled transistor radio, a tub of Crisco, and a giant black dildo. Better yet, avid readers under the influence of crystal meth report an enhanced reading experience of some of the great classics of English literature. Who knew the old man in the sea was massacred by government drones? And did you know Moby Dick's mother was a fire-breathing dragon who could read the minds of insects? These are just some of the experiences readers on crystal meth have enjoyed before ending up in a mental health facility. So no more excuses. If you find yourself at another dinner party wishing you had more time to read, leave the party, call your cousin who ruined your other cousin's wedding with that insane toast that didn't make any sense, and see if he's got any good stuff. Crystal meth. Don't take the time. Just breathe deep and make the time. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And our guest is here, Leslie S. Klinger. Les Klinger or Leslie S. Klinger? How would you like to be referred to today? Just as we said earlier, as long, uh, either way on the check is fine. Oh. So, uh... <laughs> well, we already failed to send you a driver, which you were hoping for, but you did a great job of parking earlier, so Thank that's you. nice. Thank you. You were a great coach. Absolutely. Yeah. I Next learned... time we'll send me to drive you, and then oh, you'll never ask no, that again. No, we won't. <laughs> no, we won't. You Christopher, Christopher's ridden with me to Malibu before. Oh, well, and, well actually, you, you know, Leslie was, uh, my mother gave me that name years ago, as mothers do. And um, for a long time, it was sort of one of those names where I, I didn't really like it. I didn't want to use it. And then when I started practicing law, I thought, gee, that looks kind of nice on a business card. Yes. And when I started writing, it was like, well, and I put the middle initial in, too. It looks, you know. Looks like I'm a real writer. Absolutely. Very impressive. Yes, my initials are ESQ, so I, I wonder oh, if there was some plan nice. in picking the name. Nice. My middle name is Stuart, and I've actually thought about that. what I probably need is to hyphenate, like Leslie Stuart hyphen Klinger. That's oh, kind of a, that's very yeah, impressive. Very English sounding. I started using all my names because it stuck out further in the margin in programs. <laughs> this is very smart. Very fancy. Really the fancy name. The addendum to your name, which we want to mention today, is world's foremost Sherlock Holmes expert. Which is why he's here for the Festival of Books. Absolutely. You are the uh, author of the annotated Sherlock Holmes. Did I get the name of the book correctly? The new annotated the Sherlock new Holmes. The new annotated As Sherlock Holmes. For reasons that, that I'll one. talk about. Well, I'll yeah. talk about that. Actually, the old one um, is a wonderful book by a man named William S. Baring Gould. See? Hyphenated. Baring hyphen Gould. There you and go. Um, it With an came S. out. It came, right, came out in 1967, and it's the reason that I'm a Sherlockian. I mean, it, that book hooked me, 
and um, I became fascinated. And what caught you? What the footnotes caught my attention. It's mm. when I was in uh, probably uh, most details. people read a few stories, you know, when they're in school. They didn't really make a mark on me. I was a huge science fiction reader, um, but the Sherlock Holmes stories sort of didn't really impress me. Um, and then I reread them in law school and discovered this cult, this um, hundred years of fandom that, yes. had, that had gone on of people writing about Holmes, studying Holmes intensely. Um, and I, as I say, why do you hooked. think that is? Why Sherlock Holmes? Well, um, I well, think I there's mean, a lot I, of I'm a fan, things. so you don't have yeah, to no, convince me. I, I think me, there's but... a lot of things. I mean, uh, part of it is simply that they're clever mysteries, but I, I think that's not really much of an explanation anymore because when you read the stories, a lot of the stories seem cliched. Mm. They seem cliched because Conan Doyle invented these things. Right. I mean, mm. in one of the stories, the butler did it. And uh, <laughs> in another one, there's a uh, we find a corpse which has had its face shot off by a shotgun. Now, every modern reader knows that that's going to mean that that's not the corpse of the person we think it is. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, right, of course, that's, right. that's in fact, what happens. But, right. um, but he Conan invented, invented the first things. time. Mm-hmm. So it's not really the cleverness of the mysteries. I, I think it's the relationship between Holmes and Watson that's a very significant part of it, this wonderful friendship that we kind of like to imagine we can participate in. Um, some of it is a false nostalgia for the Victorian age. Mm. Um, that, that Which seems, we probably wouldn't like well, at all. Well, that's right. That's why I say false. False because we didn't really live through it. It just sort of seems like it was a golden age. Um, was there it, penicillin? Because Eric says no. he doesn't want to live a day before penicillin was no, invented. No, there wasn't. Penicillin, and, uh, gas, no penicillin, gas lights, It was coal a bad fires, time to, bad be, uh, to be a person of color, to mm-hmm. be a person that wasn't a uh, straight uh, male mm-hmm. of the upper middle class. It just was not a, you know, it was right. a— yeah. So it was it was an interesting time. If you're an but, old rich white guy. It was a good time yes, to be alive. Exactly. As pretty much is still the case. But we've allowed a few other people some time on the stage <laughs> more recently. So right. there, so there's that element, and then I think just the character of Holmes too. I I think that the bohemian nature of Holmes. Um, I, I like to think of him as somebody who deliberately chose to stand outside society. Um, and he doesn't follow the rules. And we'd all like to imagine that we could we could thrive being like that. I think it's probably pretty unpleasant, but he seems to make it effortless. The thing that I love about Sherlock is his unflinching competence. One of the things that drives me mad with a lot of modern detectives is that they're kind of idiots. They they get it wrong and get it wrong and get it wrong and get it wrong and then in the last act, they finally some get the piece of evidence that shows them Holmes is never wrong. He's always he's right in charge. From, he's right. always right from the start. He's got it. He's not screwing around. He's not making a series of mistakes that lead him to the end. He is making a series of astute and accurate assumptions. That, that sort of competent certainty gives me almost a sense of security. Yes. I feel like Holmes is going to take care of me. Absolutely. And I Again, it's something we'd like to imagine that we could be, that kind of confident and competent. Um, He does make mistakes occasionally, and um, he does have feet of clay. Of course, he has has a drug problem. And an ego as big as Bohemia. And and honestly, he only has one friend. Um, Watson is his friend and very important to him because Watson gives him companionship, affection that he doesn't have anywhere else in his life. Mm Mm-hmm. I have been swept up by the Cumberbatch yes. Um, yes. adaptation. How do you do? You, are you a well, fan? Well, I, I I love the scripts. The scripts are very exciting because they're very carefully drawing elements out of the original right. stories and sort of embedding them as little candies in, into the stories. And I love that. I actually have done live tweeting during the broadcasts for PBS, um, sort of trying to. I call them tweet notes, sort of little footnotes about, oh, this is from oh, that that's story and this brilliant. is from this. I love and all that, that idea. And Let's hear your Twitter handle for those who want to. L. Klinger. L. Very clever. You I'm know. in. Yeah. Um, I'm so, in. So, um, yeah, because they're, all, they're like little, the, they call them Easter eggs yes, in, in yes. program parlance. The, the little bits of, oh, there's there's this exactly. one, there's that one. Exactly. Oh, I remember that. I know how this fire turns and they're, out. And they're delicious. But I must say, I, I although I admire the acting, I don't like this Sherlock Holmes, and mm. I'm not sure we're supposed to. 
Um, I think, you know, he's... You mean you don't like the portrayal? You, right, you, correct. The production right. Oh, no, no, no. Cumberbatch is terrific okay. of portraying a nasty, rude, mm-hmm. prickly, that's a good word for the FCC, a prickly character. And, <laughs> We're not actually regulated by the FCC, oh, so good. fire away, so Les. Yes. Um, this is a, an immature Holmes. I mean, mm. he's only supposed to be, I think, 29 in, in the show. Uh-huh. And so we're seeing Holmes before he's turned into a mensch. He's not really become the man that he will be that we can love later. He's not very lovable. But uh, how does that play with the Robert Downey Jr. version that we've now seen in two major Hollywood films, both of which you were consultants on? Right. Yes. Correct. Yes. God, I love. I mean, those. is is the I guess the question I want to ask you is: Is the degree of contemporariness of the adaptation measured in terms of how they depict Holmes's assets as also being liabilities socially, uh, to the degree to which they pathologize his exceptionalism? I think that, yes, I think both of them do that very successfully. Um, Robert, uh, in a slightly different way, but, you know, he's clearly a misfit and uh, doesn't much care who figures that out. Yeah, it's the thing that I love about the Cumberbatch version. I'm a a fool for the the Guy Ritchies. Those are just, I love Guy Ritchie anyway, and those movies are so much fun. But the Cumberbatch one is, the thing that, that seems to me so brilliant about the choice is that what would Holmes be like if we lifted him out of the yes. protection of being a white male in Victorian society and dropped him into modern society with the same sort of personality and disdain and dismissiveness yes. for everybody else? I wonder if this isn't kind of how that would – it's almost like time travel. It, it is. Uh, and, and I think – and uh, Martin Freeman is another big asset of the show playing Dr. Watson. Yes. Um, although, again, he's um, – a little weaker than I think Watson ultimately is. And also this is, lippier. He's a codependent, really, mm, of Holmes. Yes, Holmes's, yes that's a good And, um, you know, later we see in the stories, we see Dr. Watson weaning Holmes off of his drugs. Um, and I don't quite see that yet in Martin Freeman, that he's ready to stand up and help move Holmes toward being a better person. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a short break here, and then we will be back with our guest, Leslie Klinger, one of the world's foremost Sherlock Holmes expert. <laughs> Welcome to the first annual dinner party show, Festival of Books Authors panel. I'm your host, Honoria Rothrode, author of the Ladies' Home Companion Book of the Month alternate choice, Right or Wrong, spelled W-R-I-T-E or W-R-O-N-G for our listeners at home. Bit of a pun, Bev. <laughs> it's a memoir of my time as a memoir editor at the now-defunct publishing house Libres Real. As you know, the Dinner Party Show was founded, if you will, by authors Christopher Rice and Eric Shawquin. It seems only fitting, then, that the Dinner Party Show take time to honor those people of letters, the progenitors of all forms of entertainment, the writer. Today we have assembled five noteworthy authors who did not have anything else to do or a viable excuse why they could not appear on today's first Dinner Party Show Festival of Books Authors panel. Our topic today is the state of publishing and the future of the writer. I'd like to ask each of our panelists to take a moment to introduce themselves at this time. Hi, yeah, I'm Ed Bench, memorista and author of the 12-book canon Minute by Minute, My Life as It Happened. I'm currently working on volume 13, which will include today's panel, so don't say anything you don't want to see in print. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez, I don't think we need to worry too much about that happening, Ed. What is that supposed to mean? Decorum, authors, decorum. It means, Ed, that we can all speak freely as no one is likely to get through volume one of your memoir. Really? Well, we can't all have been married to someone famous and successful enough to support our delusional career as a least-selling mystery author. Decorum! Let's stick to introduction, <laughs> shall we? I'm Ellie Bang, author of the conundrum award-winning Bang Bang LaRue Mystery Erotica series. I'll be signing my most recent in the Bang Bang Ofra, Fifty Shades of Dead, for people who actually buy the new book. And no, I will not be signing copies of my ill-advised erotic photo spread in Slash Fiction Fancier's magazine. Who knew that's what that meant, and why would they have a magazine? Uh, the only mystery with you, I got your mystery right here, Ed. Moving on. I'm Butch Lynn Heights, author of A Girl's Guide. 
the easy step-by-step handbook for those of us who've had enough of men. And I'm Bastian Montrose, author of Decorating with Books, a DIY coffee table book on finding some use for all the attractive but otherwise useless ink and paper books that people insist on sneaking into gift bags and which lazy gift givers embarrass you into keeping by gift wrapping them and bringing them to your parties. Is that my 12-volume set on the cover of your book? (laughs) Yes. I glued them together, hollowed them out, and made them into a planter. Oh, Ed, you've no one to blame but yourself. They were already full of fertilizer, so it was kind of your idea to begin with. Thank you, panel. Our first question today is, what is the impact of the e-publishing revolution on your work and career? Let's start with you, Ellie. You've already had so much to say today. Sounds like a remark, Anoria. You get one for free, babe. <clears throat> I got my start in e-publishing. And your finish. Clever, Ed. Save it for your book. Oh, wait. I guess it's already in there. I guess you're a big fan of e-publishing, too, huh, Ed? I mean, you can just tweet your every bowel movement and people can ignore you in a whole new medium. Memoir is the soul of modern publishing. Which is dying, Ed, so that makes you more of an assassin than a memorista. Well, my book is about how to recycle all these old paper and glue mildew collectors that e-publishing has rendered obsolete. Do you even know what irony means, Sebastian? It's Bastion, not Sebastian. I think that our judges will accept that as a no. Honoria? This discussion is... Publishing is dying. Pretty soon writers will vanish and they'll be as useless as the men who use their stranglehold on information to skew the narrative toward a history dominated by their patriarchal agenda. Well, Butchland, that's a pretty strong pronouncement. You think that technology will render writers as obsolete as factory workers and typesetters? I think it's that kind of defeatist attitude that really threatens the profession. I think that saying the end of publishing is a threat to writers is like saying that the end of ox carts is the end of travelers. Homer didn't even write anything down, and that's turned out pretty well for him. Writers without publishing is like fish without bicycles. Hey! Sorry, Butch. Just borrowing your saggy feminist cliche. You can have it back now. Oh, oh my dear. Decorum, ladies. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Takes one to know one. I've got an exciting new addition for your next volume, Ed. What the hell? Not the folding chairs. They're rented. Shut up, lady windbag. <gasps> well, I never. That would explain a lot. Now, Butchlin, how about an autographed copy of my fist? Uh, oh, it's on, bitch. I'll kill you. Stop that right now. All of you. Well, this is what happens when you let the lesbians... Don't you dare. Okay, that's it. Ow, no biting. Philistine. Bitch, this is a literary festival. Phyllis, which one is Phyllis? Young lady, you have made a mockery of this panel. Who are you calling a lady? Lady. Are you kidding? This is the first interesting author panel I've ever been on. Uh, that ought to keep you interested. Don't the women just I'm This has been the first annual dinner party show, Festival of Books, Authors Panel. We take you now to the Dinner Party Show Festival of Books author interview series already in progress. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And our guest this evening is Leslie S. Klinger, one of the world's foremost experts on Sherlock Holmes. We did a panel recently at a mystery conference in Cerritos at their library there, which is actually rather remarkable. Wonderful library. And you were on the panel with me, and you uh, began to drop hints about a very shadowy and mysterious (laughs) organization (laughs) called the Baker Street Irregulars. The Baker Street Irregulars is, um, there's some visibility. It's not like the CIA. We're not totally underground. The Illuminati. (laughs) Or at least you're not admitting. The the BSI is um, 
elite in this sense, you don't apply for membership. You basically get invited to attend uh, uh, the annual dinner, the irregulars, and if you turn out to be a clubbable person, um, after a few years, you'll probably be invited to become a member of the Irregulars. There's about 300 Irregulars in the world. The organization is actually going to celebrate its um, 80th birthday next year. My. Um, so it was founded in 1934 by Christopher Morley, um, one of the great bookmen of the age, who wrote a regular column for the Saturday Review of Literature and other uh, so other outlets um, on books and he loved starting clubs. He originally put together something he called the Three Hours for Lunch Club. <laughs> and it was a group of his friends who Ideal. would, you know, they'd have martinis, they would talk My books. And over and over again, they would return to their favorite books, which was Sherlock Holmes. Now, you've got to remember, sort of in 1934, Conan Doyle had died in 1930. Um, the last Holmes story appeared in 1927. So, I mean, there was this long period, almost 40, there was 40 years between the first Sherlock Holmes story and the last appearing in print. So there's this enormous fan base that had built up and people loved the stories. Mm. So that eventually grew out um, into this current organization, which now has members all over the world. Um, and... Uh, Really does very little. No, I was going to say, what do you guys do? <laughs> we basically meet once a year for a black tie dinner. Oh, um, right. that's, and, that's worth uh, having being in a club for a right. black tie right. dinner. Any and excuse it, to wear black tie. The Irregulars is now about third, maybe a third women. Um, for a long time, unfortunately, sadly, it excluded women. Um, stupidly, I think, but it just well, it sort of happened. Society um, has taken its and, time. And uh, now it's about a third women. And so the other big thing that the Irregulars do is publish the Baker Street Journal and um, and a number of books every year. So it's a literary society. Um, the Baker Street Journal has for 60-plus um, years been the journal of amateur scholarship about Sherlock Holmes. Um Hundreds and hundreds of pages. Christopher Morley famously said, never has been so much been written by so few for so few. <laughs> <laughs> I love the obsession. I, as a writer, one could hardly ask for greater tribute than 90 years after your death. People are still writing extensively about your entirely fictional characters that you stopped writing about in 1927. Fictional? Oh. oh. I teach a class at UCLA Extension um, on Sherlock Holmes and his world, and I usually take the first half an hour or so to talk about, so Sherlock Holmes was born in 1854, his parents were country squires, here's what we know about his education, and so on, and sort of go through the career, and usually somebody puts their hand up and says, excuse me, Professor Klinger. I'm confused. Is Sherlock Holmes real or fictional? And I always say the same thing. Yes. <laughs> Which is the attitude of the irregulars. Um, we try to be respectful and, and of course, I mean, Conan Doyle, someone has called him the founder of the feast. And so we don't deny that he existed. And, but there was, a, there was a game for a long time that he was the, quote, literary agent. He helped, we know that he helped Dr. Watson get, get these his stories papers published. published. Yes, of course. Um, I, I described in, an, in an, a piece that uh, I, I wrote recently about, it was sort of a biography of Dr. Watson, explaining that poor Watson really tried hard to get his reminiscences published and eventually turned to his friend Conan Doyle to help him. Conan Doyle was able to sell a study in Scarlet, which was the first of them, but the publishers dastardly insisted that Conan Doyle's name appear as the author because he was a known commodity. Right. He'd actually written some things before that. So poor Watson sort of stuck with this and the public eventually came to accept it. And so the publishers kept insisting. And so his whole career, the you know, by Dr. Watson, but his name was on the spine. So. Interesting. We spoke earlier about the fact that you were a consultant on both of the Guy Ritchie movies starring Robert Downey Jr. And apparently there was a lawsuit relating to those films. Well, there's a lawsuit about the rights to yes, Holmes in general that you've actually filed. Right. Yes? It's it's actually the, the beneficiaries of the lawsuit will be um, in I, perhaps Warner Brothers, CBS TV and others. But mm. uh, no, they're not involved in the case. Um, as Eric says, I filed this suit. What happened was um, two years ago, Lori King and I put together an anthology called uh, A Study in Sherlock. This was stories by 
wonderful writers that we, mystery writers primarily, that we ask to be inspired by the Sherlock Holmes stories and to write something new. Um, in the course that was published by Random House um, and in the course of the publication, we received a letter from the estate saying cease and desist. You have no right to use the character of Sherlock Holmes. Um, we said, uh, of course we do. The character is in public domain. But Random House, in their publisher's wisdom, said um, we can't afford to fight this. We're going to pay them for a license. We were very upset by that, but the Random House paid for it themselves and licensed the character. So flash forward now to the present time, and we are putting together a second anthology with an amazing group of writers. I mean, Sarah Paretsky has written a story for us, Michael Connolly, uh, Jeff Deaver, etc. Big name, big name folk. Um, we have a different publisher, and once again, we received a letter from the estate saying, you can't do that without our permission. And... Um, the publisher then said, oh, well, I certainly can't publish this book if you don't have the rights. And so I filed suit in the Northern District of Illinois against the Conan Doyle estate, basically asking the court to determine that no one needs a license to write a new story about Sherlock Holmes. The reason is simple. There are 60 stories that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote about Sherlock Holmes. 50 of those 60 stories are in the public domain in the United States. All 60 are in the public domain outside the United States. The defining characteristics of the characters of Holmes and Watson are clearly laid out in those 50 public domain stories. To me, and according to other cases, that means you can't protect the character anymore. Unless you're is now specifically doing one of those 10 stories. Of course. If you're doing one of those 10 stories or you're doing a character that only appears in one of those 10 stories, you need permission. But uh, the Conan Doyle estate says, no, no, it's a unified character. The character wasn't finished until the oh, wow. last word was written by Conan Doyle, and therefore you need our rights. And it's not even really the Conan Doyle estate. It's a... It's somebody who owns the rights. It's it, um, it's Sheldon Reynolds. No, no, no. That's a different. That's a different contender for the rights. That's oh. called Baskerville Investments. That's a company that acquired the rights. Um, they have lost several times their fight, saying they actually have the rights. This is the heirs oh, this of Conan is Doyle. Actually, the this family. is Conan Doyle oh, well, Limited. Right, it's a company owned by certain collateral heirs, not children or not grandchildren. It's collateral heirs of Conan Doyle. Um, so, no, I don't think there's any doubt that they own the copyrights to the 10 stories that remain in copyright. It's the character. And this somebody dubbed this uh, a few years ago in an article with the wonderful word copy fraud. This is basically, it's not the Conan Doyle estate alone. There's others. Um, uh, the Burroughs estate, for example, has aggressively tried to stop people from writing Tarzan stories or John Carter stories, um, even though, again, those characters are probably in public domain. Because what the defines are. the movement of a character into the public domain? Well, certainly, it seems to me that if all 60 stories were in public domain... That's the end of the and argument. That in ten, in that ten will years, happen in yes. That will that happen in, anyway. in by by uh, twenty twenty three. I think and all what is determining stories. that process. So, in the United States, copyright lasts for ninety five years after the date of publication. Mm. So the last story oh, so was no, published. Even if the author, I thought it was from even the death if the author, of the author dies. No, no that's in the, the UK. It's seventy years after death. In the US, it's ninety five years after publication. Oh wow. Anything published prior to 1922 is public domain because the Bono Act extended for only a limited number of, of, of uh, stories. So there are stories that last 10 stories are going to be expiring, basically. The, the first then was published in 1923, I think. So that'll be 2018 that one of the stories will slip in. And by 2022, the last story published in 1927 will have run its course. It will have had protection for 95 years. Um, up until then, the case law that does exist on this point says what I said earlier. If the predominant characteristics of the character are in the public domain, you can't protect the character anymore, just mm. the copyrighted stories. Mm. Um, in the past, what's happened, the, the essence of copyright, a copy fraud, as this author put it, is bullying. It's basically... 
we claim we own the rights. We have money. You're just a writer. You can't afford to fight about it. Therefore, you'll pay to take out a license. And in the case here, uh, the estate basically threatened to go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the other big distributors and tell them you can't distribute that book. And it's perfectly clear that those people would have bowed to that assertion and pulled the book. They've done it. They've, they've, I've seen it happen with other writers who have said um, they didn't know they had to get a license or they didn't want to get a license. They've done it with everybody. They've done it with people, you know, little guys who are going to self-publish a book and maybe sell 100 copies. Mm. Um, they've made them take out licenses. Mm. So we said no. Mm-hmm. Well, good for you. I'll be interesting to see how it becomes the case of the copy bullies or the copy yes. fraud. Yeah, you could be your new Sherlock Holmes case. Right. Make your own uh, mystery. Well, that's well, a fascinating I'm not, you know, I, of- I'm, I'm hoping that the case will be resolved quickly. This is, uh, I don't, certainly will not make a profit on the case and don't expect to make a profit uh, of any significance but on the book. original work, but- it just seems... It's a it's a stretch. It's been going on for since the Sherlock Holmes stories first appeared. Um, that people have been making up their own stories about Sherlock Holmes. Um, some of them parody, and that's clearly an exception to the fair to the copyright doctrine. But um, not all. Interesting. Well, you don't just do Sherlock Holmes. You're also the author of the annotated Dracula. Yes. And we have all of your books available for sale in our store at thedinnerpartyshow.com. As well as your Sandman. Absolutely. You the, wrote a book about the Neil Gaiman comics. Yes, actually, it's, a, it's another. I don't, I don't do books, Chris, that weigh less than five pounds. Yeah. So this is, <laughs> this is another. This is actually four five-pound books. Um, the third and fourth volume will come out next year. Um, it's the original Sandman comics, all 78 issues reproduced in full size with, um, I think, 1,500 footnotes explaining more than you, you ever wanted love to your know. Footnotes. Of course. Well, this that was actually a very interesting project because um, I didn't know much about how comic books were written. But these days, they are written... Uh, I, I thought artists do the pictures, they left a little word balloon up there, and then the writer <laughs> kind of filled it in. Right. Uh, they're written with scripts, and yes. uh, the typical comic book script um, may be twice or three times the length of the comic itself. Uh, these are kind of a combination between a movie script and a storyboard, um, and they are detailed discussions, panel by panel, of what the writer wants to see. And that's mm-hmm. what you capture in these books. And that's what I tried to capture in the footnotes, is, is material that's in the script that um, nobody's ever seen. Excellent. So. Well, thank you very much for joining us today for our first ever Festival of Books here Absolutely. at the Dinner Party Show. Welcome to the very first annual, and uh, and all of uh, Les's works are available through the website. Um, Absolutely. So check the store page and uh, check into all of these fascinating compendiums. And of course, our as favorite footnote. Always, we have to remind you that if you do use our affiliate links, the show does get a small percentage of that sale, and that helps us to continue bringing you the Dinner Party Show for free and for fun across all platforms. We're having fun. We hope you are. Absolutely. We hope you had fun too, Les. I did. Excellent. Well, if not, the cookies are pretty good. Absolutely. (laughs) Worth the trip. Thanks for coming. We'll be back in a few moments here on The Dinner Party Show. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. We've made every effort to make sure you can access our show for free across a variety of platforms. We debut a live show every Sunday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, on the player at our website, www.thedinnerpartyshow.com. This same stream can be accessed via our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, so you don't have to be in front of your computer to join the party. We're on for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's right. If you miss the live show, we replay it continuously throughout the week until a new show debuts the following Sunday at the same time. Our free mobile apps keep you connected to these encore presentations as well. We interact with our live listeners through our Facebook page, so if you'd like to ask a question of a guest or have us respond to your comment, make sure you've liked the page for The Dinner Party Show on Facebook. Our SoundCloud profile is where we feature reports from our special correspondents. You can access all of our social media platforms by visiting the links at the top left-hand side of our website, thedinnerpartyshow.com. They're located right next to the player. 
YouTube is where we post backstage video, and Twitter is where we spotlight quotes from the show and breaking dinner party show news, including announcements about upcoming guests and special episodes. For our podcast listeners, a complete unedited podcast of the entire show posts to iTunes the day after the episode debuts. We also have a show archive on our website, which allows you to stream or download complete episodes. Our production quality is high, and so, rather than compressing the sound file and sacrificing quality for our non-live listeners, we break our podcasts into four bite-sized servings. For our iTunes subscribers, if you'd like to have entire episodes downloaded automatically, make sure you've checked the setting Get All Episodes. Otherwise, only the first serving will download automatically. At the risk of turning our entire show into a series of technical announcements, we're going to shut up now and get back to the live cast already in progress. I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And I'm Christopher Rice, and we've taken away all your technical excuses not to listen to the dinner party show. Well, I think that was really interesting. Maybe we convinced some people to read books again. I think that our listeners are big book readers and they wouldn't be listening to us in the first place. Okay, okay, if you say so. We want to remind you that everyone who was on the show this evening, except for our panel authors who are all in trouble, (laughs) have titles available through our store. Leslie Klinger has multiple books. I think he has seven books we have available in our store, uh, which include The Annotated Dracula and The Annotated Sherlock Holmes. Janet Fitch has two novels, which she discussed earlier this evening, White Oleander, which was made into the film with Michelle Pfeiffer, and Paint It Black, both of which were set in Los Angeles, and And she is an L.A. native. Many of their previous guests and all of their previous author guests, uh, their books are also available um, on the Dinner Party Show website, on the store page. And if you buy through the store page and use our affiliate links, you're helping to support the Dinner Party Show without you know, depriving the authors of a penny of their own income. Absolutely. And everything that you buy during that visit, if you click through on one of our links, we get a percentage so of it. So do your Christmas shopping and buy some groceries. Absolutely. So if you want to go on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or iTunes and you don't feel like buying our guest products... <laughs> Go on and buy something else. Just get something for the house. Stock up. Get yourself something cute and expensive. Absolutely. We want to continue bringing you the show for free. And this is a great way for you to support us in a way that won't make us beholden to any big, bad, evil corporate sponsors. Although I can't see Eric being all that beholden to anyone, least of all a corporate sponsor. can't imagine that happening. Although, you know, if they brought us large truckloads of money, we'd take it. I just don't see about being beholden. The last time you said that, some people on the Facebook page got fed. They were like, careful, Eric, careful who you sell your soul to. I'm not selling my soul at all. Just be clear. They can bring as much money as they want. I will still not be beholden. (laughs) That's not happening. Excellent, excellent. Well, also this week on our website, we're debuting the special correspondence page. Uh, We are collecting the best reports from our special correspondents like Breck Artery, Joan L. Sams, Jordan Ampersand, Eric's favorite, and we're making a dedicated page on the website. Those clips have typically been hosted on our SoundCloud profile and they're still there but now we're organizing them as part of the site itself in a very fun and easy to use format. So you can click through very easily and listen to some of your old favorites and maybe catch up on some that you might have missed although we hope you're here every week. I know that sometimes other things happen. I don't know. I think like Justin a and Sumiko have almost perfect records and Buffy does too. Yes. Let's yeah. hear it for the perfect attendance Perfect club. attendance. Michael Minch is another one. Freddie Espinosa. They're all pretty regular I have to say. Good. Glad I, to hear it. And we appreciate the support. So we're doing something for the first time next Sunday or the week following next Sunday and it is our first ever marathon. That's right. We are re-airing every single episode that we have done on the live stream. Yes, make no mistake. Christopher and I will not be running anywhere unless somebody is chasing us. Absolutely. And my name for the marathon was shot down in our business meeting yesterday. I wanted to call it Chariots of Ire, but apparently that's not enough well, about humor I think that and levity. Could be, that can be the uh, the subtitle. The, the Dinner Party Show, first annual marathon, Chariots of Ire. That could be a collection of Eric's rash pronouncements of the week. We can call it Chariots of Ire. So beginning at the usual time, Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, we will begin by re-airing our premiere show with our special guest, Anne Rice, and then the shows will continue to repeat on a loop every day. And so if you plug into our stream at any time of day, you will not be hearing the same show. It's a great time to treat us like we're a real radio station and to tell your friends about us. 
and they can catch up on past episodes, or you can just leave it on and entertain all of your guests at your house. There's 48 hours of continuous programming, <laughs> so you can listen to two days. hours. You can listen to two days of the Dinner Party Show without ever hearing the same thing twice <laughs> until day after tomorrow. Unless you go to sleep at some point, but if you're high on drugs, it's a great thing to listen to. I right? think our show is great if you're on drugs. I think our show is great pretty much any way you, you listen to it, but I... I can't imagine that would hurt. Our, it goes better with drugs and donuts. Donuts, yes. Definitely donuts. donuts or coffee. So at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on Sunday, May 5th, we will begin the 48-hour marathon of all of not just our greatest hits but all of our hits of the Dinner Party Show. That's right. We're going to re-air every single show we've done beginning with our premiere episode featuring special guest Ian Rand, super capitalist. <laughs> no, that's Anne Rice, world-famous vampire novelist and my mother and Eric's girlfriend. So, yes, we're starting so that. Tune in for almost more Dinner Party Show than you can stand. Absolutely. In the meantime, I'm going to continue to be Christopher Rice. And I'm going to always be Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to the first ever Dinner Party Show Festival of Books. Thanks.